This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Welcome to an abbreviated July 4th week episode of This Week in the CLE, the podcast discussion of the news by the people who deliver that news to you, the reporters and editors at Cleveland.com. Because this is a holiday-shortened news week, on Monday we published a special podcast episode, a debate about wind turbines in Lake Erie and the view from 30,000 feet of the criminal investigation in the Cuyahoga County government. I'm Chris Quinn, editor of Cleveland.com, and for this episode, I'm joined by columnist Mark Namick, politics editor Jane Cahoon, data guru Rich Exner, and reporter Emily Bamforth. Are you all ready to start a little fireworks of our own? (laughs) Jane, let's start with the state budget. For the first time since 2009, the legislature failed to pass a budget by the June 30th deadline, and that's kind of amazing given that Republicans have huge majorities in both the House and the Senate. Why can't they get it together? It is really amazing, isn't it? I mean, we also have a Republican in the governor's office. And the last time this happened, we had divided government. We had a recession, um, all kinds of bickering and fighting. This time around, uh, the budget passed both the House and Senate overwhelmingly with bipartisan support. So then they get down to the nitty-gritty over the weekend, get into some of the details. And um, the uh, Senate, I think, thought they got some of the amendments too late and they didn't have an adequate chance to really review them. And then the snark kind of started flying between the Senate leadership and the House leadership. And next thing you know, they were like, okay, we want to err on the side of caution. We're going to pass this 17-day interim spending measure. So... All of Once they pass separate budgets that don't agree, the next step is they get together to reconcile it, and that's not done in public, right? That's all secret? Right, right. That's the conference committee, and there are a few legislators from each chamber that are supposed to um, start with one version of the budget, either the House passed or the Senate passed. Apparently that was, they had difficulty even deciding which version they were going to start from. And uh, and then you're supposed to go over all the the points of contention, the differences, and come to an agreement. So even though it's in secret, we're able to discern many of the areas they agree on, right? So so what are the right. key things they do <clears throat> agree on before we get to what they, they don't agree on? They haven't on? announced this, but from what we're hearing, um, of course, they all want tax cuts, but they can't seem to agree on the level of tax cuts, the business tax cut, and apparently there are some real disagreements over some of the health care stuff in the budget, the Medicaid, the the so-called Healthy Ohio program that uh, critics say would put up a lot of barriers for poor people um, on in the Medicaid program. Right, and, that's the um, stuff they disagree on. What do that's, they agree on? Oh, what do they agree on? Well, tax cuts, just not the size of them. Um you know, the budget's an enormous document, so you have to say that they agree on the majority of things, but you get down to these little sticking points. Well, maybe they're not so little, but um, if you look in the at the whole budget, yeah, they, they agree on it. 
We've talked a lot about the the effort by the House to kill the film tax credit, which was a, a big thing in Northeast Ohio. Are we getting a sense of whether the House has changed its tune on that, or if the Senate might agree to get rid of it, or is that still behind closed doors um, secret? You know, I I don't have any inside information on this, but I just have to believe that that will um, remain in the budget because it's not a lot of money, and these other things seem much more contentious. And, and things like the film credit is a good negotiating piece. You know, we know that somebody's championing that is, is Dolan, Matt Dolan from up here. Um, I, I can't help but wonder, and I don't know if Jane knows the answer to this, but, you know, a householder, Larry, you know, House Speaker, Larry Householder, you know, to get his position had to really make deals and seem more receptive to Democrats, and I wonder if that that those allies or those those issues he represents are now coming back to tangle them up a little bit or have they just ignored the democrats now that it's it's in the republican court at this point what do you think jane i i think they have not ignored the democrats um however the democrats have not missed the opportunity to characterize this as a major failure of gop leadership not to reach an agreement but at the same time, uh, particularly House Minority Leader Amelia Sykes, you know, seems to um, have a good relationship with Larry Householder and speaks respectfully of, you know, uh, of that. So I, I don't see them throwing the Democrats under the bus. Rich? On the um, film credit, I was curious to, to know that Governor DeWine presumably was okay with it because he didn't propose cutting it in the budget that he proposed. If it comes to him and they're eliminating it, does he have the power to line-item veto that? Or if he line-item vetoes something that costs money, does he have to come up with a way to um, replace that money? Uh, no, I wasn't prepared a, for that question. But they have a balanced budget, though. They have to have a balanced budget. He does have the ability to line-item veto, but, um, yeah, I'm not sure. So... Does this come down to the heads of the House and Senate just having a pissing match? Is this Larry Household well, and Larry Abhoff trying to show who really runs the state house? Just as an observer, you got to believe those two are not crazy about one another. In fact, I would say it appears they don't like each other very much. Um, whether it's a pissing match, as you say, I, I don't, I don't know, but. Um, the, the leaders are the ones who are still working on it. I mean, um, the householders let his caucus go, you know, start their holiday and, you know. Yeah, so, they're out fishing. Uh, <laughs> they're, they're out fishing. We saw. Some of them are, yes. Um, what happens next? So next, um, as I said, this week um, – uh, a lot of the lawmakers are just going to enjoy their holiday. Um, there is a core group in, you know, working hard in Columbus. Um, uh, the the chairs of the finance committees in the House, uh, Scott Olslager, and in the Senate, Matt Dolan, are supposed to be um, getting together this week and hopefully working some things out. But I don't think we'll see anything until, you know, my prediction is sometime next week they'll come up with an agreement and they'll vote on it. But all right. You never know. It's not just the budget that has them fighting like cats. They also failed to reach agreement on the bill to bail out Ohio's financially challenged nuclear plants, something First Energy has been fighting for unsuccessfully for years. This seemed like a done deal after the elections last November, but here we are in July with no agreement. What happened there? 
Well, I think the path was smoother in the House, uh, which passed it. Uh, Then it got to the Senate, and they made some changes uh, that the House does not like. Um, At least Larry Householder doesn't, uh, where they they cut back a little bit on the nuclear plant subsidies. They restored some of the um, energy efficiency and renewable mandates. Um, So they have a bunch of amendments to go over, and the Senate basically just said, we don't have enough time to do this by June 30th. What's hilarious about this is First Energy has said for months now, we have to have this decision by June 30th. That's our deadline for ordering nuclear fuel for the next months of of, uh, running the plants. But all of a sudden, they're changing the tune. I guess that June 30th (laughs) deadline wasn't hard and fast. They they issued a statement this week that sort of... um, uh, maybe it didn't say this directly, but it, it pretty much said, we, we can wait. Uh, it, it's going to put a burden on us. Um, you know, we did have this deadline. Um, but if you guys pass this, you know, in the coming weeks, then we'll adjust. It'll well, be a burden, but we'll adjust. And they have said that, uh, First Energy has said that they've been talking to s- the Senate President, Larry Obhoff, about this privately. So you got to believe they have some insight into where they're headed and are confident, but they still have to keep that threat going or else those commercials that are pounding us every day on the radio won't mean much of people losing their jobs. And But you saw that in their in their messaging too. First Energy is saying, well, you know, we, we, we're going to still plan to decommission these, but maybe there's a little winkle, uh, wiggle room there. I, clearly, they're, they know more than they can tell us. Well, let's talk a little bit about their financial condition. Jane, you work with State House reporter Jeremy Pelzer, and he recently analyzed whether the nuclear plants were in as much financial trouble as First Energy claims, something that wasn't easy to do because the records aren't the best. What did he find? Well, he found that the legislature basically is working without specific data on this because First Energy Solutions uh, is in the middle of this bankruptcy case and they say they have several um, non-disclosure agreements and they they can't be specific about the profitability. But then you had this almost surreal hearing recently at the Statehouse where the experts paid by First Energy Solutions were like uh, testifying that the the plants were not profitable, they were losing money, and then the experts paid by the opponents of House Bill 6 came in and said, um, no, they're they're profitable, and um, it's it's just, you have to rely on estimates or, you know, industry... I think Jeremy kind of wrapped up the story saying it does look like they are actually in some distress. Yes, there are some economic indicators that that would lead you to believe that. It's just... um, Natural gas is so much cheaper and prolific in this state that it makes it hard to compete. Okay, closer to home, we have one of the most popular features we publish each year on Cleveland.com. Rich Exner's reports on area restaurants that get cited most often for violating the health code. Rich, you've been doing this for years now. What's different this year? Different is more than the same. What's amazed me on this is there there are hundreds, thousands of restaurants, even in the city of Cleveland. We only really list the ones, the 25 that have the most violations. Uh, There's over 3,000 that got some violations. Most just get a handful. 
it's still surprising to me that after that many restaurants that some of the same names can come up again and that happened again this year uh, there's a place down in the flats uh, McCarthy's Ale House it's three times out of the four years we've done it they've made our list and back this year uh, for two years in a row is a place that's a pretty popular uh, Italian uh, restaurant on the near west side Bruno's two years in a row so it, it, it does still kind of surprise me with as many restaurants as there are that some can make their way back in you know two or three years and people can read this on Cleveland.com, but the way you break it down is you list the total number of violations, but you also list the ones that are deemed critical. What what does it take to be a critical violation? Is it like cockroaches on the floor or rats running around? I, I take the definition that, uh, that the state health inspectors come up because they classify those as critical, and what they say is critical is something that could cause a an, uh, foodborne illness. So it's a you know problem more than just shuffling papers. And as I, as you go through them, a lot of times it has to do with temperature of food and hands being cleaned properly or in the right sink. And and sometimes it is uh, rats and insects and roaches. That's kind of gross. And these are some big names like the XO Steakhouse and uh, and some of the others that were there. Restaurant owners hate these reports. We hear from them every year. Why do you think it's so important to publish this? Well, if you're going to be in business selling food, the laws, it, it states decide that there are certain procedures you must follow, and these people are not doing it. Now, the health inspectors will say it's all an education process where they're there to help them for next time and so forth. But the bottom line is every restaurant gets inspected at least twice a year. Something's not going right if they're getting um, violations. And what I've found interesting, too, now doing this for four years in a row, it's very few times that a chain restaurant comes up. Most times it's a place that's an individual operation hmm. or it's an operation it's a regional chain that say maybe they have three or four some of the more popular names have come up in multiple counties but not the large chains so the people in business of doing food know what they're supposed to do know how to train employees health inspectors say they're out there trying to train them as part of this process but yet again the ones we're listing are way out of the norm in the old days we really couldn't do this as effectively when we just had a you know, the print organ because you just didn't have the space now with the unlimited space of the internet you don't just do this in Cuyahoga County. You basically roll this out county after county uh, for some time. What do you have coming up next? So right now on the on the website, uh, you can find that the, the restaurants that had the most inspection violations and, and other places that sell food. Maybe it's a gas station uh, for, for the city of Cleveland. And that's the ones that are cited by the City of Cleveland Health Department. Next up, next week, we, uh, hopefully you'll be seeing the ones for the suburban Cuyahoga County. And in the, in the coming days and weeks, you'll see them for Lorraine County, Summit County, Medina County, uh, Lake County. So you'll get a, you know, across the region. I kind of intentionally don't put them together because I figure different um, health departments might have a little, little different level of what they consider violations. So I group the ones that are inspected by the same people together. But it's just not those. If you're curious about the restaurant that you go to in your neighborhood, uh, I do have a separate database. You can punch in a city or the name of a restaurant and see if it had any violations and read the details on them and see what, what's going on there. Yeah, it's a very popular feature. All right. A bit more than a year after local entrepreneur Bernie Moreno launched the Blockland Initiative, we had some big news this week about where that is headed. Emily Bamforth has been covering this since it began. Emily, let's start with the development news first. What's his plan for Tower City? So this is something, he calls it the worst kept secret in Cleveland, and it's kind of true, <laughs> because people have been talking about this forever. The idea came up with the beginning of the Blockland movement last year. Um, there were rumors that he, Bernie Moreno was going to announce this at the Solutions Conference, which was the sold-out blockchain conference that took place at the convention center. 
in that, December. Right? In December, <laughs> um, that didn't work out. Um, but finally, we're here. Um, and what happened is Bernie announced that uh, Blockland, which is a grassroots organization, it's stacked with civic leaders here, but it doesn't have an official budget. It's not owned by any particular company. Uh, Bernie does have a blockchain company, but it's not an official organization. Um, is entering into an agreement with Bedrock Detroit, which is uh, Dan Gilbert's real estate company, um, and they are making moves on the mall in Tower City, which was purchased in 2006. And ever since, Bedrock has been looking at the best ways to use that space, um, which if anybody has walked through Tower City, you know that it's not necessarily the most hustling and bustling place. Um, And malls in general are not doing incredibly well. Um, So what they're looking at is a 35,000 square foot entrepreneurial hub called City Block. And uh, it should interweave um, with some of the establishments there. We don't have details on what tenants are going to stay, which ones are going to go, but they're basically going to make over um, the inside of Tower City. At his announcement, he he almost was begging to, for help to get yeah. tenants for this, and it's a far cry from where it started. Originally, this was going to be a blockchain-centric right. space, but he's now saying it's much more of a tech space. It's even a little farther out of that. It's, it's an entrepreneurial space is what he used. He didn't even say it was a technology hub necessarily, um, which the Blockland movement has moved slightly out of all blockchain all the time into we're a technology advocacy organization. We advocate for the the technology of the moment and the, that's blockchain. Um, but in this case, it's, it's definitely different from what he originally proposed, um, but I think that really widens the opportunities. I think Cleveland should appreciate the vision. Uh, it's great that we have a, a, an entrepreneur like uh, Bernie trying to push this, but I think we got to keep in mind a couple of things. One that you know, mm-hmm. obviously, the deal's not done, right? Um, and it, it's far from being done. And, and you know, Gilbert has been trying to figure out what to do with that space since he bought it. And, and if you think about the annual film festival down there, and each year that film festival wonders if they're going to you know be able to be back next year. Um, and, and literally that worry has been around for at least five, six, seven, eight years. And each year nothing happens. So we know it's slow. The second thing is is the perspective on this idea of a space itself is not the driver. He needs real people to want to commit to the Cleveland. We have another building that's just like this that's even newer and nicer. It's called, I will always call it the Medmark. <laughs> it's the Global Center for Innovation, which you know was supposed to be this space that's a before blockchain. First, it was going to be medical, and then it it kind of morphed into you know other things, and they kind of ramped it up again with this bio enterprise and plug and play, and 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 now even that's struggling. So we that space is struggling. We can't put the faith in the space. We've got to be able to find these these leaders. Emily, what I think is interesting is that there's. I feel like the MedMart was a different pitch in a way. Yeah, um, the exact pitch was a Disney World for medical devices. <laughs> that yeah, is the, the actual this, terms. This isn't a about. Disney World for blockchain employees. Um, and and the parts of it that I think a lot of readers are excited about and and looking at this are more exciting is this outweigh pedestrian walkway where it will connect. 
uh, the the mall to the the river um or and and that kind of thing it's it's all the different parts where they're going to be able to put in different renovations theoretically if they raise the money to make this space kind of new again and i think that for example there's going to be potentially a giant uh retail store in the back of it it's not just that these are all going to be startups lined up in a row. It's going to be that retail space and everything like that. And there are apartments in this building. There's the casino next door. It's in a different location than the MedMart. It's on a transportation hub. But, but back up. Yeah. You, you said if they raise the money. Well, it's $110 million. Do they have any of it? Um, that has not been disclosed. That's for the space. Mm. And, and I know Bernie knows this because he's, he's a businessman. But companies don't want a space they want funding they want investment in their ideas and i don't know how this merges necessarily with that and i and i know they're not blind to that fact but it just seems like we're selling a space um and we need to be you know they know that it takes way more than so a nice skylight. I think that they know that. And and honestly, it's good to keep that skepticism. And, and I think that we're all fairly skeptical. <laughs> <laughs> like It's at the beginning of my story. It seemed like a long shot whenever it was announced. But it, the thing is, is that there is also a possibility that they'll start up a venture capital fund to invest in businesses that take root in this in this uh, building so it could become kind of an incubator it's just there are a lot of things up in the air in the moment and you have every right to be skeptical everybody has every right to be skeptical but at the end of the day this space needs to be reimagined and when bernie began this movement a year ago people looked at him cross-eyed he pretty much single-handedly got this city moving together in unison so who knows where he takes this it's it's interesting especially when you look at the way that the black clan movement itself has changed now and the conversations it started we need to remember that this started like a year ago and you have to think of it in the life cycle of any organization when are things really going to start to happen so we're going to begin to see whether or not there are results soon all right we'll take a break and be back in a moment you're listening to this week in the cle everyone has their favorite writer at cleveland.com and now you can get a bit closer to them through cleveland.com's project text each weekday they will send you a text message about what they are thinking as they go about their reporting it's a unique way of engaging with mary Kay cabot as she covers the browns doug lay maurice as he thinks about ohio state university Corey schaefer as he shares insights about the justice center and many more there's a small fee which we use to support our journalism check it out at cleveland.com slash project text you're listening to This Week in the CLE, the podcast discussion of the week's news by the people who bring you that news, the team at Cleveland.com. I'm Chris Quinn with Mark Namick, and in this segment, reporter Pete Krause, sports editor Dave Campbell, and pop culture writer Troy Smith. Up next, let's talk about criminal justice reform. At Cleveland.com, we launched our Justice for All project in 2016, aiming at reforming the system of bail that penalizes the poor. Since then, a huge group of court leaders has been mapping a plan for justice reform led by Common Pleas Court Chief Judge John Russo. Pete Krauss has been covering this all along, and he brings us news this week of a pretty big step forward. Pete, what is it? Yeah, well, uh, on Monday, Judge Russo, at a meeting of the Criminal Justice Council, announced that... uh, that uh, the Cleveland Municipal Court should start providing pretrial services uh, 
in October. Uh, these services would be supervision and monitoring for felony suspects. And what this means is that rather than have bonds set that they might not be able to meet and, and thus require them to remain in jail, uh, they can be put on electronic supervision, various forms of monitoring, and allowed to go home. And the benefit here is is twofold. One, for the defendant, it allows them to, to, to go home, meet with a lawyer, go about their life while they're awaiting trial. And two, it keeps... Uh, uh, it sends fewer people to the jail, which, as we all know, is is overpopulated. One one of the things that we've discovered as we've worked on this project is that that people of lesser means are more likely to be locked up, and when they're locked up, they're at risk of losing their jobs, they're at risk of losing their families because they're not home to take care of them. Part of the aim of this is to equalize that so that rich and poor have equal opportunities to maintain their employment while they await trial or stay oh. with their families? Oh, I think so. And I think that's that was the primary motivator. I think that the fact that this was going to relieve the, the jail population uh, is kind of a secondary thing, but a very a very big thing, as it turns out. But I think initially it was designed to be, to be uh, provide a more fair uh uh, situation for poor defendants who, because they didn't have money to put up their bond, they remain in jail. And also, um, you know, traditionally, uh, judges have used bond uh, uh, or they've set bond based on the charge, irrespective of whether or not a person uh, may or may not return to court as as expected. And I think they're learning that they don't have to the, uh, make make a defendant have money hanging over their head to get them to come back to, to, to court. They'll do it. You know, we started this project three years ago, and almost immediately, Rousseau launched the effort to reform it, knowing that it had lots of pieces and parts and people with differing opinions. But it is three years later. And so you started three years ago with a pretty serious commitment to change the system and we're still not close to being done. Why is it taking so long? Well, it's taking so long because uh, we'll just take Cuyahoga County, for example. There are 34 judges with 34 ideas on how they run their courtroom. And you cannot mandate how they how they do things. Uh, one organization that can is the Ohio Supreme Court, and they've gotten involved, and they'll be coming out with a set of recommendations very soon that relate to bail reform. So it's taken time because there are a lot of different uh, uh, people that are looking at this. It requires a change to the way things have been done for for decades. Uh, other parts of the country have done it uh, much quicker uh, than Cuyahoga County. But Cuyahoga County, I would say, probably is a little bit ahead of the, of the average in, in terms of, of reforming. But one, let me just say one other thing: there have been there has been some progress. Uh, the Cleveland Municipal Court, in particular, has been has been doing a lot to uh, to keep people from having to post bond, and uh, and this thing that they're going to be doing in October would just be the latest example. They already do those things for misdemeanor defendants, um, so there has been some progress, but it takes a lot of changing minds. All right, it's a holiday week, so let's talk about some fun news. First up, Major League Baseball All Star Game returns to Cleveland. Friday, we'll see the start of activities and festivities that lead up to Tuesday's game. We have sports manager Dave Campbell here to lay it all out. Dave, let's start with the sports side. We don't just have the game. We have other contests of skill that take place here. What are they? 
Yeah, well, Major League Baseball has really tried to make this more of a celebration of baseball the last several days instead of just about the All-Star game. So um, the competition stuff actually starts on Sunday. Sunday night at Progressive Field, they're going to have the All-Star Celebrity Softball game. That's going to go from 5 to 6.30. They're bringing in celebrities like Jamie Foxx and Simone Biles, the Olympic gymnast, Drew Carey, a lot of Cleveland celebrities that we've all become familiar with. I think J.R. Smith is supposed to come in for that. Hopefully he doesn't forget what inning it is. <laughs> um, but So we'll see who comes. But the, they've got a really good list of celebrities coming in for that. And then that's going to be followed by the Futures game on Sunday night at 7, and that's like the best minor league players in the American League versus the best minor league players in the National League. The Indians have two guys uh, that will be participating in that. Monday night's the home run derby where they're going to have eight of the best sluggers in baseball go at it and just try and hit as many balls out but of the let park Let me jump in on that that point, uh, Dave. you got to yeah. remember, they, these are the superheroes of baseball who get the tee off on a ball that doesn't curve, dip, or break as it crosses the plate, so I'm not impressed. No, I mean, it is just a, a show. The they whole, just lob that ball in. There are <laughs> rumors of corked bats and all kinds of shenanigans going on. They're just, they just want big, long home runs that are going to look good on TV. That's the whole and point. And they use technology to track it. You can actually watch it in real time, uh, both the arc of the ball and uh, the distance. So if someone can hit it out of progressive field, I think that's going to be a, a significant Troy, did you write that, that whole spiel about the, the superheroes of baseball or whatnot? That is, I like that. You should try it. You know, should sell that to MLB, man. This week uh, about... <laughs> You know, we can still find baseball in its purest form not far from the all-star activities, and that's uh, the Cleveland's uh, Inner City Baseball League, which is actually underwritten a lot by, by Major League Baseball. They've made Absolutely. an effort yeah. to come in, and I went and uh, followed one of the teams, uh, and the teams are actually named after many of the rec centers, uh, and the reason for that is they kids don't have transportation. They meet at the rec center, and the vans take them to play ball. They play at League Park? Uh, they do on occasion. All right, let's talk about the All-Star game itself. Which Indians will be in that game? All right, so three players made it for the Indians. Uh, Carlos Santana is going to be playing in his first All-Star game. He actually w- won the fan vote, and this is going to be his first All-Star game. He's going to be starting at first base, and he's really excited about that. And actually, Carlos is going to be in the home run derby, too. They asked him to be in that, and the big question was, was he going to bat righty or lefty? And he's going to bat lefty. So if you want to catch any home run balls, you should go sit in the right field stands from him. Who's going to pitch to him? Uh, I don't know. Maybe the Indians batting practice. We're trying to find out. The batting practice maybe One of the kids from Marks. (laughs) Yeah, 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 there you go. Uh, The other two Indians are um, Francisco Lindor, the shortstop. This is his fourth straight All-Star game. And then Brad Hand, the relief pitcher. Uh, He was tied for the most saves in the American League coming into this week. And uh, this is his third straight All-Star game. He made the first two when he was with the Padres. The last time it was here in 97, Jim Tomey and Sandy Alomar were the big names in Cleveland. Alomar actually was named the MVP then. They have roles this year. What are they? Yeah, so Jim Tomey is going to appear in the celebrity softball game, and also a bunch of former Indians are going to be in that. Kenny Lofton, Carlos Baerga, Mike Napoli, Travis Hafner. And then for the Futures game on Sunday night, Jim Tomey is actually managing one of the American League team, and Charlie Manuel and Dave Burba are going to be involved there. And the manager of the other team, the National League team for the Futures game, is going to be Dennis Martinez, and he's going to have Omar Vizquel, uh, Chuck Nagy and Carlos Baerga on his staff. And then Terry Francona is actually going to be on the bench on uh, Tuesday night for the All-Star game. He's going to be one of the coaches. All right, and Tommy and Alomar, they're the, the parade uh, stewards or, or something? Yeah, they'll be doing that. So there's some free stuff you can do as part of this. They're, they're really trying to make it more, like I said, a celebration. And on Tuesday before the game, they're actually going to have a parade. It's going to start down on Lakeside. It's going to go up 9th Street to the ballpark. And the players are going to be sitting in like open-air Chevys and driving up 
up and fans can show up and wave at them. And then they're going to have a red carpet ceremony where the players get out of the cars, walk a red carpet. It's going to be like the Oscars or something. They're trying to make it like that. And they walk into the ballpark and fans can just go hang out and see the players there. And they're really trying to make it more than just going to the game. This is actually baseball taking over downtown Cleveland for a few days. All right, and our website's loaded. Mark Bona has written a bunch of stuff about things people can do for free and in and, uh, and the days leading up to it. How yeah, there's a lot of concerts, and, and um, Joan Jett, your favorite, Chris, will be playing yeah. Sunday night. The at- tickets are all sold out, though. <laughs> how, is, how is Jim Tomey in the softball game? Isn't that a home run every time they pitch to him? <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> they're gonna have to they're gonna have to decompress his bat or something because yeah, I don't know. I don't know if he's playing or managing. I'm guessing he's probably be playing. I think yeah. they put like a fake fence out there. They too. do, yeah. yeah. So that should be interesting. Yes, the bat right handed. I like that. All right, we'll end on a musical note. The Rock Call debuted this week. It's long-awaited Garage, in which anyone can strap on a Fender or Gibson guitar, play the piano, or bang a drum, taking quick lessons from instructors or through a video monitor. The goal is to get anyone, including non-musicians, immersed in the central idea behind The Rock Call, the conversations to be had by making music. Troy, you check this out. What's your take? It's impressive. Uh, the floor—it's all on the second floor. They redid the entire floor. It's interesting to see this new exhibit that cost two million dollars on the second floor, where they used to house some of the oldest stuff, be it the Sun Recording Studio and the Les Paul guitars. Now everything's brand spanking new, so it's pretty cool. Can somebody actually learn? A non-musician sitting with the video or sitting with one of the instructors they've hired. Um, learn to play the very simple rock songs that they've put up for this? I think it varies. You know, I was in the drum studio playing uh, We Will Rock You with my one drumstick because that's all it takes to play (laughs) We Will Rock You. That worked pretty well in about 10 seconds. I struggled with Smoke on the Water just the way they were teaching it on the video. But Hannah Drown, who was with me uh, for so doing a Facebook Live when we went, she picked up on Edge of Seventeen by Stevie Nicks on bass, and she was really into it. So she learned that song on bass in, in under five minutes. How will the rock call keep people moving through this? I imagine if somebody really starts to have a good time there, they're going to want to keep playing. Do they have time tickets, or do they have people that will usher you out? I don't think they figured that out fully. I think they think it's going to be kind of a friendly sort of, okay, let's move on, let someone else in. They're bouncers, don't they? They're going to bring the guy from the Showtime at the Apollo, get the hook, start pulling people out of there. Um, it's easy to kind of go from station to station and just stay there because you want to play all the songs. You don't want to stop. It's a lot of fun. So tell me a little bit about the dynamics. So people show up, they don't know each other. And somebody might want the guitar, somebody might want the drums. They're basically strangers that will be learning this together in 10 minutes. Yeah, it's interesting because the way it's designed and the way they set up the sound, you can be in there by yourself. You're in this tube of sound uh, that comes from the ceiling, and only you can hear what you're playing in that moment. Is that right? It's, yeah. Insulate the sound out from outside. It's really impressive. But then you look at the person next to you, and you kind of want to ask them, like, what are you playing? How are you doing? Um, and, and the instruments are so top of the line, I really felt like I was going to break something. Um, and there is an agreement button you have to hit please if you you take responsibility <laughs> if you break it i don't know who's paying for like a fifteen hundred dollar fender guitar but whatever you have to hit the the agree side <laughs> can, you sm- can you smash your guitar after you finish playing you don't want to smash these guitars if you're responsible with this guitar you're gonna have to sell your car or something <laughs> and this is top flight stuff the amps the guitar all though. donated it's it's all every guitar is fender um gibson or the acoustic guitars are all martin guitars is there anything like this anywhere else? The closest thing I can see is the Sound Lab in Seattle at the Museum of Pop Culture. 
but they use kind of more rock band guitar hero virtual reality techniques this is pure you know hands-on old school plug-in instruments analog you, you actually have the instrument it's not on a post you actually strap it on yeah and it's it's I was impressed. I, I kind of went into it thinking, okay, this is going to be stupid. Um, but it was it was very impressive. All right. All right. That does it for this holiday shortened news week and this episode of This Week in the CLE. Thanks to Mark Namick, Jane Cahoon, Rich Exner, Emily Bamforth, Pete Krause, Dave Campbell, and Troy Smith for the discussion. This Week in the CLE is normally published Thursday nights. Hit the subscribe button so that you never miss an episode. And let us know how we are doing by sending an email to special at cleveland.com. Mm-hmm.